This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for January 23rd. A federal judge rules the Liberal government's use of the Emergencies Act was unreasonable and violated charter rights. We'll talk to Federal Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne, and the Power Panel reacts to the ruling. Plus, Republicans in New Hampshire head to the polls to pick their nomination for president. We'll connect with the CBC's Katie Simpson from the Granite State, and Canada's ambassador to Washington tells us how Ottawa is preparing for the outcome of the U.S. election. We're going to start today, though, with that breaking legal news out of Ottawa. A federal judge has ruled the Liberal government's controversial use of the Emergencies Act to clear convoy protesters out of downtown Ottawa in early 2022 was unreasonable and infringed on the protesters' charter rights. The judge wrote, I conclude that there was no national emergency justifying the invocation of the Emergencies Act, and the decision to do so was therefore unreasonable and ultra-virus. For more on this story, the CBC's Catherine Tunney joins me now from Ottawa. Okay, Catherine, uh, break down this ruling for us. Well, you know, in a blow to the Liberal government, Federal Court Justice Richard Mosley said that invoking the Emergencies Act was unreasonable, unjustified, and violated parts of the Charter. Now, he was asked to kind of weigh in after a number of civil liberty groups and some individuals um, brought forward a case arguing that the Liberal government had, had gone too far, had reached too far when it invoked that um, act back in 2022 to deal with the convoy protesters here in Ottawa, of course, but also um, at blockades um, across the country. Country. Now, in the act, um, in order to declare a, you know, a national emergency and, and a public order emergency, there needs to be a threat to the security of Canada. And that is defined, kind of, you have to link it to another act, um, which is how CSIS defines um, threats to, to, to Canada. And that can include things like espionage and foreign interference and violence. And ultimately, Mosley said that while there were some concerns about security um, in the protest, he did not feel that the government reached that threshold um, as defined in the act. And, as defined by CSIS, by CSIS and therefore did not rise to a true level um, of a public order emergency. Now, he also took aim at some of the perhaps most controversial parts um, of the Emergencies Act and the orders that came out of it, being the economic measures, you know, the, the, the freezing of people's bank accounts. And, and he said that that, that, that violated parts of uh, the charter, uh, violated protesters' um, charter rights, including, you know, the freedom of expression and the right against unreasonable search and seizure. Okay, so, so Kat, this went off like a thunderbolt here at the Cabinet Retreat uh, in Montreal. What's been the, the broader reaction to this news and this judgment? Well, you know, those who, who brought the case forward, they're pretty happy and they're, you know, of course, claiming victory. One of the groups was the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. And, you know, they said earlier today that one of the reasons they brought this forward was to make sure that other governments um, don't do this. So you can take a listen here. Our goal at CCLA was to make sure that this and any future government would be deterred. They would know that if they try to take on massive powers for themselves outside of the ordinary democratic process, that we are watching, that people in Canada are watching, that the use of emergency powers are, are important in a national emergency, but they're dangerous and they take away accountability and protection for ordinary people. 
We're also going to see celebratory notes from people like Alberta Premier uh, Daniel Smith and, and Conservative leader Pierre Polyev also w- was quick to condemn the Prime Minister because of this ruling. Um, quite a different tone, of course, as you know, coming out of, out of the Cabinet retreat. The government does say that it plans to appeal this decision, and, and Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland said, you know, she believed that what they did um, back in 2022 was legal and that she still believes that to this day. Okay, so so what happens now? You've already mentioned that the federal government says it's going to appeal. What else uh, are we watching for? Yeah, so of course, waiting to see where that appeal goes. You know, there, there is a potential here that it could go all the way up to the Supreme Court. So we potentially have months, if not years more, of, of debating this and, and, and what, you know, what that threshold was and, and, and whether it was met or not. also want to flag, though, that, you know, next month represents, you know, the, the two-year anniversary uh, of the invocation and also a year since the Rouleau Commission, which, of course, came up with a very different decision. He, the commissioner mm-hmm. there found that the government did reach the threshold um, to, to in, um, invoke the act, though he also said that we never should have gotten here in, in the first place and release a bunch of recommendations. And the government said that they would respond to those recommendations within a year, which is uh, next, next month. And one of those recommendations was to kind of strip the act of that, of that CSIS definition because it um, caused so much confusion and chaos. Um, and even the CSIS director himself said that he, you know, he supported the, the invocation even though it didn't perhaps reach that definition. Um, so you know, we perhaps could also see even well before um, a court case that the government would, would update the act and, and perhaps change that language, of course, that could get lots of heated debate um, in the House of Commons if that is, in fact, what's coming down next month. Okay, Kat, thanks so much. That's the CBC's Catherine Tunney in Ottawa. Okay, so as Kat mentioned, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, she's one of the ministers who reacted to this today. She said that the government will be appealing the federal court's ruling on the use of the Emergencies Act as unreasonable. I was certain after a lot of deliberation with colleagues and many others that we took the right decision. I was certain at the time. I was certain when I testified before Rouleau, and I remain certain today. Francois-Philippe Champagne is the Minister of Innovation, and he joins me now. Minister, thanks for taking the time. Pleasure, and Happy New Year. I think it's uh, still okay to say that. It's our first time on the show well, together. Ha- happy New Year. It's good to see you. I-, I don't know if it's a happy day for your government. Uh, this decision from the, the federal courts that you were wrong to invoke uh, the Emergency Act and the measures you used violated the Charter. Did your cabinet make a big mistake? No. Uh, we did the right thing for the country. Uh, that's my opinion. Obviously, I respect the court process, and, and I think you've heard that the government of Canada is going to appeal uh, to the Supreme Court of Canada. But let's, let's bring ourselves back to where we were at the time, where you had bridges that were closed, you had streets that were blocked. I would say the first responsibility of any uh, cabinet, of any government, uh, is to ensure the health and safety of its citizen and ensure the security. And, and if you recall at the time, there was a huge economic impact. I mean, jobs, a thousand job jobs were at stake at the time. So it's always easy to kind of look back, you know, with the benefit of time and say, but remember at the time, David, no one really knew what would happen next. Right. And, and we had an obligation to restore order in the country. That's what I believe. And um, that's what we're going to be. That's why we're going to be appealing to the Supreme Court. Of but Canada. some of the examples that you've cited, for example, the Ambassador Bridge and the yes. significant economic uh, impact that that would have, that was clear before the Emergencies Act was even invoked. And, and the other standoff in Coots uh, in Alberta, which is near the border, that was done through normal police work by the RCMP, uh, if you can call anything normal under those circumstances. Yeah. It wasn't because of the Emergencies Act. What the judge has found here is that really it was Ottawa that was out of control. 
and in, and in their view, it didn't rise to the level of a national emergency. That well, I, say, like I said, I respect, I have not had the benefit of reading the opinion. You know, we were at the cabinet retreat. Uh, but what I would say, and folks who are watching us at home uh, understand that there's a time where uh, government uh, need to restore order. You know, at the time, we did not know what would be unfolding after. And in line of the economic hardship, uh, you may remember there was issue also with our partners uh, in the United States uh, about uh, the fact that you know these these key supply chains were being disrupted, that that jobs, thousands of jobs were at stake. Um, there's a time where I would think you know reasonable Canadian would say there's a time where these things need to stop, that we need to restore order, and we need to ensure the health and safety of Canadian. And I say that not from any political perspective. You know, this was the first time that the act was involved. Obviously, right. you know, people are going to read the decision and learn from that uh, for future government, if ever they ever have to use this act. But I would say uh, doing what's right for Canadian at the time, uh, I stand by that. Are some of the measures like deputizing police officers from other jurisdictions more quickly, commandeering tow trucks. Uh, but there are, the judge does take exception with freezing of bank accounts, freezing of credit cards, some of these things that were used as, as simply going too far. I, I mean, when you, when, you, when you get that in a ruling, does it make you uh, second guess or regret any of your choices? Well, listen, like I said, my, my colleagues, I think a number of ministers have commented, who had, uh, in, in all fairness, David, who had a chance to, to, to go more deeply into the decision. Like I said, I was at the cabinet retreat. Uh, but we're going to be appealing that, and we're going to be making our case to the Supreme Court of Canada. But I think fundamentally what I think Canadians and people watching at home tonight uh, are looking and say, I think that there, there's a time where the government needed to act uh, to stop what was ongoing in the country, to restore order, to restore uh, you know, stability and, and, and predictability, and restore our, our key supply chain. You remember you mentioned the bridge, the Ambassador Bridge yeah. were, were blocked. I mean, we were, and no one knew, David, now, let's, let's go back at the time, no one knew what was coming next. So, uh, you know, I think in that, in that case, you have to, to be prudent, and you need to have the tools to make sure that you can restore order. Do you think a judgment like this may embolden the convoy, supporters of the convoy, people who oppose the vaccine measures that were brought in by your government to maybe take further action? Uh, uh, certainly not, I hope, because in a way, what, what it says as well, there, there's, you know, we live in a democracy. People have the right to, to demonstrate peacefully. That, that's a fundamental right. Um, which uh, has always been respected in Canada. So there's ways to do that. But the way to do that is not to block bridges. The way to do that is not to jeopardize thousands of jobs in the country. The way to do that is not to block key trading uh, supply chain in the country. The way to do that is not to, to bring a full city to a halt. You know, there, there's ways to demonstrate and there's ways for people to make their voice heard. The people on the other side of this argument would say that the way to restore order and keep order and, and preserve trade is not to violate the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is what has been found today well, listen, by the federal court. Like I said, this decision is going to be appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada, and we'll see what the Supreme Court of Canada has to say on that. Uh, but again, I just want to go back to, you know, now it, it looks like a distant past for most folks who are watching at home tonight. Uh, but, but put yourself in the shoes that we were in that time, not knowing what was to come next. I think that, um, I think that the vast majority of Canadians would think, uh, there was a moment where we needed to restore order in this country. So this was two years ago, pretty much to yeah. this month, when, when it all started. And, and at the time, I remember, uh, your government was getting calls from the White House because of what was happening at Indeed. the Ambassador Bridge. Indeed. Now, it tells you about the seriousness and, and the, the need to act. 
I mean, I think Canadians watching at home, I can tell you from where I live, people, something needs to happen. You know, the government had the responsibility to restore order. That's what but, we did. You know, your, your party defends the Charter of Rights uh, publicly, especially the, uh, Arif Farhani, your justice minister, has criticized premiers who have used the notwithstanding clause, for example, to override individual rights issues uh, in the Charter. I, I mean, when you are found by a court to have violated the Charter of Rights and the use of this act, what does that do to the government's moral authority when, when you're criticizing other well, governments for what they do? you know, like I said, this is not the final decision. I'm a lawyer, so th this is still going to be appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada. Let's see what the Supreme Court of Canada has to say on that. We respect, obviously, uh, the judicial process, but I would wait until we have a, a final a ruling on that, which will come from the uh, Supreme Court of Canada. Okay, where I was going when I mentioned the White House was the yes. other focus of this cabinet retreat today with, with the reorienting of some cabinet priorities to deal with the political events that are going to happen in the United States. This is a, a task force on U.S. election readiness. Would you be doing this if it didn't look like Donald Trump had a chance to win the White House? Well, I think it's a smart thing for any government at any given point of time. And I know we all know uh, that the U.S. election, the next one, in particular, is going to be very consequential for Canada and for the world and for Americans. So I, I think what the prime minister has said, we're going to double down, you know, to be prepared, to be thoughtful, to be strategic. And I think can Canadians expect nothing less from us. And, and the good thing for people watching at home is that at least they have a team who's done that before. Uh, this is, uh, you know, Ambassador Inman was there, uh, Minister Freeland. Uh, I was a foreign minister at the time, Minister Jolie. I mean, so this is a whole of government, but at least this is a team which has done that before and can be trusted. Obviously, there's things that have changed, but it, there are things that remain, you know, the fundamentals that, you know, I look even at our uh, economic security now. We are far more integrated in key supply chain, whether it's about semiconductor, whether mm. it's about biomanufacturing, whether it's about electric vehicle. Let's remember that you're sitting probably probably an hour away from uh, two of the largest factory of GM and Ford, which are going to supply all the factories in North America. So my point is that uh, one thing that every administration understands in the United States is jobs. And the right. fact that millions of jobs are going to depend on us working strategically right. together. Right, and that was the argument you used last time to great success and, and built support, uh, a coalition of supporters throughout the United States at the municipal level, at the state level, and the congressional level. A big difference this time, though, Minister, should Donald Trump come back, is there were people in the first Trump administration perceived to be moderates. I don't see anybody in what would be a second Trump administration who would be described as moderates. He is facing criminal indictment for his role in January 6th and with election denialism and election interference. It would be an entirely different Trump administration should he win in November, would it not? Well, I would say, hence the, the, the need to build relationship. You know, I think you have uh, with this uh, government, a government that has been working both with Republican and Democrat administration. And, and so that should give confidence to people who watch at home to say at least these people know what they're doing. They've done it before. You're right. Things have changed. But like I said, I think that the fundamentals are even stronger today than they perhaps were at the time. Because when you think about, you know, if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, if you look at the CHIPS Act, all of that is about resiliency. And I've been one of those who went to Washington time and time again and said, you know what? If you want to be resilient, Canada has to be part of the equation because our supply chain are integrated. 
You know, 80% of the semiconductor that are manufactured in the United States are packaged and tested about an hour away from where we are today. So these things that even President Biden acknowledged in the House of Commons, we need to bring it back to governors, to senators, to mayors all across the United States. These measures you highlight, though, are are things that have happened under a Biden administration, a Trump administration, obviously would be very different. And and while you're preparing for the possibility of a Trump administration, you're using Donald Trump as a political weapon to attack Pierre Polyev. So, So how do you build a relationship with the Trump team and the potential Trump administration when using him as a club against your main political rival here in Canada? Well, I say the task for job is really to bring the strategic message uh, of Canada. You know, it's a call uh, to action, you know, for everyone who's watching to say, we're going to be talking to labor, we're going to be talking to a leader in business, we're going to be talking to scientists, we're going to be talking to mayors. I mean, this is a whole of, not only of government, the whole of Canada effort. That being said, Uh, we're going to be going down in the United States to talk to all these stakeholders that you said that, you know, perhaps have a different view than us, but we need to at least build the bridges, make sure that they understand the strategic nature. And one thing that I've learned, David, over my 10 years doing that is when you talk about national security, when you talk about economic security, when you talk about energy security, you have people who want to listen in Washington. But, But, you know, as you talk to these people, you may at some point have to talk to President Trump and a President Trump appointed cabinet. And, and if you're using his language and behavior as, as a point to criticize Mr. Polyev, he's going to see that because you're putting it on the internet. I mean, these are social media attack ads. How does your domestic political strategy imperil your potential well, uh, relationship this, this with the US? This was about for Canadians to know, uh, to the extent they may even know him, who's Pierre Polyev. I can tell you there's not many people in, in this province who know even who he is. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, for... for for explaining to Canadians where he is, is taking some of his thoughts. You know, the thought, for example, of we've heard from the uh, Conservative Caucus to withdraw from the United Nations. Really? Mm-hmm. I, I think people need to know that. If that's, that's, the, that's, that's the view they have, uh, people need to know that. That being said, um, our job is going to be to make sure that we make the case uh, of the strategic relationship of Canada to the United States, build these bridges. And, and you know, it goes to, to all sorts of places. I remember when I was in, in Houston at the Johnson Space Center when we announced we're going to be uh, going back to the moon together, you know, with the United States. These relationships, there was senator were there. We're going to build these relationships, go to these mayors, go to these governors, and, and make sure that everyone understands the strategic nature of our relationship. So, but, but, but your strategic decisions here, you, just as a final point, you don't see a downside in, in, in using Donald Trump to attack Pierre Polyev with a potential relationship with, with the Trump administration? Let's be honest. I don't think Donald, <laughs> President Trump, uh, pays a lot of attention to the leader of the opposition in Canada. Trust me, I'm he sure be, he, but he, he might pay attention to what the government other, of Canada is doing. He has other doing. things to do. I'm not sure there's many Canadians who even pay attention to him, let alone uh, a former president of the United States. Our job is going to be uh, to make sure that we bring that the, the strategic relationship. And, and I invite everyone, you know, mayors, premiers, we're going to bring everyone on board. We've done that before. Uh, we we've done it well, and we're going to do it well again to make sure that we project. And, and protect the strategic interest of Canada. Innovation Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne, thank you so much thank for Thank you, David. Thank Pleasure you, meeting you. Former U.S. President Donald Trump is hoping for a knockout punch tonight in New Hampshire. State voters there are casting their ballot for their preferred Republican candidate in the presidential election. And it's considered to be Nikki Haley's last chance to prove she's a viable alternative to Trump. 
I'm not going to talk about an obituary just because y'all think we have to talk about it. I'm going to talk about running the tape and saving this country. I think we have to do it. I'm a fighter. I work hard. And I do it because I love this country. Is she a threat to you? No, no. She, and I don't care if she stays there. Let her do whatever she wants. It doesn't matter. I can just say that there's never been a movement like this. Make America great again in the history of our country. The CBC's Katie Simpson is in Concord, New Hampshire for the Republican primary, and she joins us now live. All right, Katie, I saw the Ditchville-Knox results uh, earlier this morning, and Nikki Haley had a 6 nothing lead. She's poured a lot of resources into the state. Can she pull off an upset? What do you think? David, probably not. Um, probably not, but I don't ever want to predict American politics because predicting American voters, no <laughs> one wins uh, if you try to predict what they're going to do. Um, but we've sort of spent our day traveling around to different spots around New Hampshire, trying to get a sense of how people are feeling and just um, the understanding of just how significant this moment is. As you mentioned, David, uh, this is a, a really crucial moment for Nikki Haley. She needs to demonstrate that she can at least be competitive with Trump if she is going to try to continue on with her bid. Now, you heard her say in that clip that, you know, she's uh, pushing on to South Carolina. That's the next major contest in this quest to become the Republican nominee for president. She's already scheduled events in South Carolina. She is repeatedly saying she is not going to be giving up. But remember what happened just a few days ago, uh, heading into the New Hampshire primary, uh, Ron DeSantis, who placed second to a distant second to Donald Trump in the Iowa caucuses, uh, he decided that he was going to pack it in and uh, decided to drop out of the campaign and endorse Donald Trump. So uh, I've heard from some Trump supporters who, who think uh, it's time for Nikki Haley to pack it in now and get in line and support uh, Donald Trump. Um, but it, it's really going to depend on how things go tonight and whether uh, Nikki Haley can demonstrate to voters that she is competitive and, and whether Republicans are really interested in having a candidate who is not Trump in this contest. So, uh, Katie, I know you've been speaking to voters, um, and you spoke to the governor of New Hampshire last night live on the show. I, I mean, what are you hearing today uh, from people in terms of how they're feeling about this particular race? Well, everyone we speak to, whether they're participating in the Democrat uh, primary, whether they're voting in the Republican primary, everyone has an opinion on Donald Trump. Uh, he is the one who everyone is watching and everyone has very strong feelings about him one way or the other. Uh, and it's really talking to voters today, you really capture a sense of the divisiveness. I'm positive, 100% positive, President Trump is going to win in a landslide. The economy is terrible right now. Our borders are a disaster. President Trump was keeping this country running. The economy was great. And people, young kids can't even buy their first home now. People are living at home, saving money, because it's ridiculous, the interest rates. So I would like to see President Trump win. I'm sure he's going to win. And I think Nikki Haley should pull out at this point. I am embarrassed to say that I'm an American. When we have people like that certain person that's been indicted running for high office in this country, I'm embarrassed. So those are really the two extremes. 
you've got Trump's solid supportive base. Every time we talk to someone who is voting for Donald Trump, um, I ask, you know, is there anything that's happened in the last 12 months, whether it's the criminal charges uh, or whether it's anything that came out of the January 6th commission? That's more than 12 months ago. But is there anything that in any way, shape or form that is that is shaking your faith in Donald Trump or has given you a moment for pause? And the answer consistently is no. Uh, the answer, the responses I get typically are uh, people repeating what Trump has said at his rallies, uh, describing any sort of criminal charges he's facing as a political witch hunt, that the Biden administration is trying to go after Donald Trump because Donald Trump has a shot at beating Joe Biden in November. So um, that, if you want a snapshot as to what's going on within Trump's base, that's it. All right, Katie, thank you so much as always. This is CBC's Katie Simpson. She is in New Hampshire and she will have live coverage throughout the evening right here on CBC News Network. Well, the potential of another Trump presidency loomed over the federal cabinet retreat here in Montreal. The final day of these meetings focused on Canada-U.S. relations. Here's the Prime Minister speaking about a possible Trump win. Obviously, uh, Mr. Trump uh, represents a certain amount of, uh, of unpredictability, uh, but uh, we uh, will make sure we're pulling together and preparing for whatever eventualities. Kirsten Hillman is Canada's ambassador to the United States. She's here in Montreal from Washington for today's cabinet retreat. Ambassador Hillman, it's good to see you again. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about this effort, this task force uh, that, that the government is setting up to prepare for the U.S. election. Is this something you would be doing if it was just a normal U.S. election, or is it something you're doing because Donald Trump could possibly win this election? I think that it's something that we're doing because it is a consequential election with consequential issues on the table. I think we would be doing a version of this no matter what, um, but the focus and probably intensity is a little bit more because there are a lot of things at stake in the Canada-U.S. relationship that are vital and that we want to make sure that we handle as best we can to put Canada in the best position possible. I mean, the stakes are obviously always high in a U.S. election, but they seem higher now. I, I mean, the Donald Trump who is running now has a different record and a different legacy and a different group of people around him than last time. How do you see the potential stakes of this election compared to 2016? So one of the things that I, I talked to the captain about this morning, and I think it's really important for everybody to keep in the back of their minds, there's a lot of discussion around uh, Donald Trump, um, his previous presidency, uh, his candidacy potentially this time. But this election is also an election of every single member of the House, 435 members of the House, mm -hmm. 34 senators, 11 governors, uh, five of them from states that border Canada. And when we try and get stuff done in the United States, when we try and make sure the Canadian voice is heard, of course the White House is really important, but governors and members of Congress are crucial to getting things done. And often they're really important allies when maybe we don't see completely eye to eye with, with the White House, whether it's a Democratic or a Republican White House. Right. And certainly you haven't seen eye to eye with Joe Biden uh, during the four years of his presidency, but the rules of engagement around those disagreements seem more normal, more typical, right? Like the, the rules-based world order applies in a Biden White House. You've heard you know, Donald Trump saying he would be a dictator on day one. You, you know, we've seen you know, what happened on January 6th and, and the low levels of trust in the elections uh, in, in the country it's all very concerning, right? So, so what's the number one thing you're worried about as we head into the, the heat of this uh, U.S. election cycle? I think the number one thing that I'm focused on uh, is taking the, talking about the issues and making my team, having our team in the United States and those who we will be working with 
over the coming months here in the context of this task force and elsewhere, focus on the issues, focus on what matters, what we need to be conveying to Americans. And if I have a tagline for this, it's making sure Americans understand that their relationship with Canada is a source of strength for them. That's not a partisan issue. Mm -hmm. People who have uh, jobs that rely on Canadian investment, people who have supply chains that rely on Canadian inputs or who purchase Im inputs from U.S. producers, uh, people who are interested in ensuring our national security, um, who, who are involved in our joint law enforcement. So energy security, national security, um, economic security, environmental security, rarely at the local level where people really care about it, break down on partisan lines. You can find people at the local level, the state level, the congressional yeah. level uh, to reach out to and work with. There was conversation in 2015, 2016 that there were some moderates around Donald yeah. Trump. I don't know if those moderates are there anymore. A lot of them left during his presidency, and they sort of disavowed the, the, the mega political culture. I mean, who are the people around Donald Trump that could be the people that Canada can reach out to uh, to forge those relationships with? Well, that's exactly what we're in the process of sort of compiling and mapping right now. So we have a, and have had for months in D.C. a process underway where not just in Washington, but our team of, of 12 consulates across the country have been state by state um, compiling lists of who are the potential electees, who are their influencers, who are the main players in the business community, and making sure that we have contacts into all of those communities. Sometimes those are Republican communities, sometimes they're Democratic, Democrat communities. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're doing, sort of systematic, very uh, methodical uh, um, uh, gathering of information and then deploying of, of, of people to talk to. How much does the domestic political strategy of the government affect your diplomatic strategy in the United States? I'm sure you've seen the ads the liberals are running comparing Pierre Polyev to Donald Trump and using the specter of Donald Trump to criticize their main political rival. Surely that's been noticed in the United States. People have seen that. You know, unfortunately, I think Americans pay a little less attention to us than we'd like them to. And sometimes that's a challenge because we want them to be focusing on things that are happening in our country but sometimes you know it just it is what it is so I, it isn't something that has really come up with with me um, or any of my colleagues as far as as far as they've told me I think that again for us our job is to focus on the issues right and those issues are issues that are important to Canadians are important to make sure that we maintain the strongest possible ties um, and you know we have a, a caucus well we don't have it the, the House uh, the uh, Congress just mm -hmm. uh, established a caucus on Canada bipartisan and bicameral which means it's House and Senate Republican and Democrat and it was founded and conceived of by Republicans who through sort of U.S. efforts and priority on reshoring and friendshoring, realized that maybe they were paying insufficient attention to the way in which Canada was helping them secure their security on critical issues, on critical materials and strategic goods. And so now we have this caucus of 62, I think, now members that are wanting to talk to us again about the issues. And as I say, they come from Mississippi, they come from Alabama, we come from across the country, um, and they're not interested in talking politics. They're interested in talking about the things that matter to their voters. Okay, so because it hasn't been seen or come up yet, doesn't mean, I, I mean, they're in the heat of the, the primary cycle mm -hmm. and, and, and the campaign cycle, but it doesn't mean it won't get noticed, especially if it accelerates, because clearly this liberal government here in Canada 
seize an opportunity in this, or, the, or they wouldn't be doing it. I mean, is there the potential, you think, that this could spill over into the U.S. and potentially make the relationship building more difficult? I, you know, I, I, I don't think I, I don't know if I, if I can say whether it will or whether it won't. I think that those people who are supporters of former President Trump are proud supporters of former President Trump, um, and they're, they're proud supporters of his policies. So pointing out his policies may be you know, something that it doesn't necessarily register too much with them. But, and to date it hasn't. So last time, the, the big economic threat to Canada was what he was going to do with NAFTA, mm-hmm. right? And, and look, he's still got to win the nomination. He still has to win the election before this even becomes a, a live threat. But we know Biden is not a challenge there. The fact that this is now Kuzma or USMCA, whatever you want to call it, you know, uh, depending on where you are, the fact that it's his, mm. you know, do you think that insulates Canada a little bit uh, from the threat of having, you know, the continental trade agreement uh, put under the microscope again? I think it should. Uh, I think we, we are definitely, that is our view. Uh, this is the agreement of the Trump administration. It is the agreement that he has touted as the best trade agreement that is, you know, that, that's out there. We think it's a great trade agreement as well. And so I think that as we um, approach those issues, and should he be inhabiting the White House again, uh, that's exactly where we will start from, which is look at this great agreement that we did. And by the way, that agreement, since it's been in force, has led to record number, record mm. levels of trade between Canada and the United States, between Canada and Mexico, between Mexico and the United States. It's working. So it's a success. And I think that it's important for us to point to that success for the president. Um, and let's not break something that is working really well and as it was intended to work. Just as a final point, Ambassador, as you're doing this you know, uh, Team Canada approach to the U.S., is the focus solely on that bilateral relationship and on economic and trade ties, or does the conversation extend to the geopolitical challenges like advocating for NATO, for example, and the U.S. continuing to be a robust partner in NATO and with the defense of Ukraine? Because as what we're seeing is a shift in opinion there and an inability to get the aid package they need. Is that part of this effort as well? Yeah, it is. I mean, to be, to be frank, it's primarily, my job is primarily uh, around our bilateral relationship. Right. And so that is, as you say, economic security, it's energy, our energy relationship, it's trade, it's business, but it's also tourists, it's also landowners, it's also mm-hmm. investment, like it's, it's also transportation, infrastructure. I mean, it covers a wide gamut. Uh, but that being said, Canada is a, you know, a staunch supporter of NATO and believes that American participation and leadership in NATO is essential. So when those conversations come up, we will absolutely uh, lean into them. Um, and a lot of Republicans feel the same way, right? I do, I do feel there needs to be a bit of nuance here. It's a complicated country, and that party has many different perspectives within it. Um, and those things will play themselves out over the coming months. And, and, and we'll be able to have, hopefully, some, you know, some, some serious conversations about those issues as we progress with the Americans. Kirsten Hillman, Canada's ambassador to the United States, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. A federal court says the government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act to end the convoy protests was unreasonable. Federal Court Justice Richard Mosley writes, I conclude that there was no national emergency justifying the invocation of the Emergencies Act, and the decision to do so was therefore unreasonable and ultra-virus. Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland responded here in Montreal. We respect very much 
Canada's independent judiciary. However, we do not agree with this decision and respectfully, we will be appealing it. Time to discuss that with the power panel. Michelle Cadario is, with Vanguard, is the Vanguard Strategy CEO. Kate Harrison is Vice Chair at Summa Strategies. Cheryl Oates is a former Director of Communications for outgoing Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley, now with GT & Co. And here with me in Montreal, Emily Nicola is a columnist with Le Devoir. Gang, it's good to see you all. Uh, Emily, let's start with you. A, a big legal defeat at the Cabinet retreat. Yeah. What does this mean for the government that, that took so much heat and was so certain it did the right thing well first of all it does derail the narrative when you do a retreat like that <laughs> you sure do want to yeah. come out of it uh with certain messages um and so that's that's not good in terms of timing for them um that being said uh, you know of course it's a bad day for them uh, they will appeal it uh the the rule of commission report had a different take on this mm -hmm. uh, so basically the overall narrative if you've been following this this story closely is that basically it's murky uh and because the the law essentially was written in a way um uh, that was that match essentially 1980s um uh, realities and not uh, the, the, those realities that we've seen here, and and we've seen it as well in the in the Rouleau report in terms of just how much um, the law is not supposed to be invoked in certain circumstances, but those circumstances doesn't exist if you have very ish, you know troubling issues with the police services right. or, or so all of those circumstances were out loud, uh, were out, uh, were written already and so uh, the decision of the court is something that is a hot potato for them right now it doesn't mean though that it's um, necessarily uh, that much of a clear cut in terms of how they did wrong it will though give ammo to the conservatives in terms of how they want to paint the, yeah, the liberals absolutely. and so it's much a father for question period uh, you know it's more question period material than than in and of itself something that will change Canadians' minds on this issue. So, so Kate, uh, on that, right, we do have the Rouleau finding that the decision to invoke the act was reasonable in, in Justice Rouleau's uh, opinion. But what we have here uh, from, from Justice Mosley is that it was unreasonable and the measures they imposed were unconstitutional and violated the Charter of Rights uh, in a couple of sections. So, so how does this change the political dynamic on this one? Yeah, well, it, I think it changes quite a bit, certainly for people that have been following this quite closely, uh, and conservatives uh, make up a, a huge swath of, of those viewers and, and people paying attention. It's it's a big victory. I think the government has a lot of questions to answer in terms of, uh, you know, why they, they chose to do this. The threshold, rightly, should be very, very high. And I think it's noteworthy that, you know, the justice uh, said that he actually went into this thinking that he would side with Justice Rouleau and that he was actually convinced yeah. after the presentation of evidence evidence uh, in, in the opposite direction. So uh, it does create a lot of discomfort, rightly, for the government. Uh, I, I think it continues a pattern, David, of using kind of politically expedient tools to deal with small p political problems, and then courts saying, wait a minute, we have an issue there. I'm thinking about, you know, the challenge that's happening on the plastics bag ban. I'm thinking about the challenge that's happening on environmental assessments, for example, where courts have said, wait a minute, federal government, there's some overreach happening here, or at the bare minimum, you're not following the proper processes. So um, all of these kind of ghosts of politically expedient decisions passed are coming back to haunt the government, uh, and it has completely trampled uh, the narrative coming out of the cabinet retreat. Do you think this was expedience, though, Kate? I, I mean, uh, the, the occupation of Ottawa lasted longer than the Beijing Winter Olympics, and, and the feds <laughs> kind of had to get involved because 
Ottawa and Ontario either couldn't or wouldn't. I, I, it didn't feel expedient to me at the moment. It felt late and, and kind of they got pulled into it. Uh, perhaps, but they used a tool that should the thresholds should be in, incredibly high in order to use that to bring about a change. Of course, I think, yes. You know, in terms of existing laws being enforced, uh, the federal government could have done a number of things, and other governments also dropped the ball here in terms of, of their response to this. Uh, but in terms of taking yeah. a hammer uh, when using a scalpel might have been more appropriate, that's what the federal government chose to do because this was a political problem for them. And now, you know, th what this justice is saying is that, that was not, the threshold was not met. Right. And Cheryl, uh, on that point, the, the way the, the justice ruled on this is that what he felt had happened in Ottawa was essentially uh, an illegal uh, protest and a loss of public order, but it was locally contained and didn't rise to the level of a national emergency. And, and also we had the issue in Coots, of course, in Alberta, where you are, uh, where, the, where the blockade went on for several weeks and where arrests were made. Police work uh, largely undid what was happening uh, at Coots. What's your sense of where the justice landed today and what this means uh, politically? Yeah, I think uh, we have to remember that uh, the most extreme parts of this movement were organized and got their information and disinformation um, from untruths and sometimes falsehoods that were spread online. And that information is what helped them organize and coalesce and in, in you know one case take a city hostage in other block uh, borders and if this ruling stands if we move forward under this precedent what we're basically saying is that not only do we as a country condone this kind of organizing this kind of campaigning this kind of lawlessness but we encourage it Michelle how do you see it well, first of all, the idea that there was some kind of a scalpel or tool that could have easily, um, you know, dislodged the protest from downtown Ottawa is um, just not true. The, uh, you know, there, if there were ideas that should have been followed and be put on the table, I didn't really hear them. And I don't think anyone, I think everyone would have taken any idea that was possible. And certainly the Conservatives weren't putting things out. The, you know, calling in the Emergencies Act, that was done under... Um, I'm sure a lot of deliberation. It was done with the support of many premiers, including Premier Doug Ford in Ontario, because the whole city was completely paralyzed, as we've said. And, um, you know, now we have, we have the, uh, the, the court process. Um, we have uh, one ruling that's come out that's, that's different than the, uh, than the commission ruling, and now it's going to appeal. And, uh, and I think that they're doing the right thing because irrespective of, of what that ruling might in the end be, they will probably learn something in terms of the definitions, in terms of, something, of how the law is actually written mm. that might be, as Emily said off the top, actually refined to actually reflect where we are today um, in, in 2024, um, not, uh, not uh, in, uh, in so many decades past when it was actually written. So, Emily, there's where we are today in 2024, but where Ottawa was in 2022 was a city in Ontario, yeah. and everyone was looking in, in, for either the municipal government or the federal government to do something, because the Ontario government was largely absent in this situation. Yeah. And if you look at this ruling, and it says it wasn't the federal government's problem to solve, by definition, it seems to me that this was very much the Ontario government's problem to solve, and they, they didn't. 
No, they didn't. And so that's why it's a tricky situation for any judge to look at. Because if you look at the law itself, you read it, and you try to look at the situation, and you ask yourself, does the situation match what's written in the law? Then you're going to have the kind of court decision that we had today. If, however, uh, you you take into consideration the, the, the fact that the law is written in a, in a, in a feeling where uh, basically the municipal level is supposed to work properly and the Ontario government is supposed to be doing its job, mm -hmm. then of course the federal government uh, wouldn't necessarily have to act the way it, it acted then. And so uh, the law is written in a, in a perfect world where every, yeah. everybody else is doing their jobs. That's the issue. And it's also written in a world that's stated. And to connect things back to the first segment with <laughs> Donald Trump maybe going back and with the kind of elections that we're looking ahead uh, in the in the United States, it might be actually very uh, urgent to look at this law and make sure that we have uh, not just the law, but emergency preparedness in Canada yeah. ready and that we have a, a notion of what constitutes a, a security matter that's actually um, updated and, and, and takes the far right seriously. That's been our biggest issue in Canada, taking the far right seriously. Kate, uh, I, I can tell you, this was not on the agenda here at the cabinet retreat. <laughs> I think this may people may not talk about the auto theft summit after this. I, I just I, I wonder what, what you think awaits the liberals, you know, when they get back to auto Ottawa, what this might mean um, uh, for, for convoy supporters in particular in that dynamic. And we're going to talk to the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. I mean, they challenge us on principles. They were principled interveners. Yeah. But the people who are occupying the streets or supporting that movement, what do you think this repudiation of the government's action means for them and their costs. Well, I've, I've been wondering a little bit this afternoon in the wake of this ruling uh, whether or not the appeal is, you know, kind of genuinely uh, principled and ideological on the part of the government of really wanting to see this through, believing firmly that the invocation of the Emergencies Act was the right thing to do. Uh, but part of me, the cynical part of me, wonders if it's very much about uh, creating an uncomfortable situation perhaps for the Conservatives. I think that, you know, when they're talking about the convoy, um, that the, the liberals seem to be quite content to do that. And so by appealing, you know, you're creating a new media cycle for this. You're giving some oxygen to your point, David, some more of those, uh, folks that were upset about it may come to the fore. They may get a little more ink. Uh, and some liberals, I think actually relish the opportunity to be mm -hmm. discussing that. I do think that largely most Canadians have moved on. Um, the convoy vaccine mandates like that is a distant memory for the vast majority yeah. of people. So the liberals have some risk here in terms of overplaying their hand and, and overhyping, um, you know, the, the ties between convoy and, and uh, the conservatives, et cetera, this ruling. Uh, but I do wonder if part of this appeal, the decision to do that, is motivated by a sense of trying to draw that contrast out even further. But Cheryl, just to strip politics out of it for a second, which I know is very difficult to do in this, um, but because this is a, a piece of legislation that a lot of people said was outdated because it was written decades ago and had never been used before, there is value in having the Supreme Court perhaps ultimately weigh in on its use and its application and what constitutes reasonableness because it is a piece of legislation of national importance and uh, the court may often like to give some guidance on that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think if you look at the commentary that's out there, if you look at the commentary across this panel, even amongst ourselves, we don't necessarily agree with how the legislation should have been interpreted, whose role it was, and if other uh, bodies didn't step up, step up, was it within the federal government's jurisdiction to then step in? And I think at the very least, if you start from that place, it makes sense to have this reviewed. I mean, even the inquiry and this court mm -hmm. ruling don't find the same outcome. And so it makes sense to just take a harder look at it. 
Michelle, uh, what do you think of that just as a, as a final point? I mean, I know the Rouleau Commission was meant to be sort of the public-facing accountability mechanism for a government that would use these extraordinary powers. Now this judicial review has come in. I, I mean, the value uh, of this going potentially to the Supreme Court for, for extra clarity. What do you think, what do you think there? Yeah, no, as, as I said earlier, I think that that is beneficial no matter what the ruling ultimately is. Um, because that's a way that uh, kind of guides government in terms of where the gaps are, um, in terms of interpretation or, or what is not written down. Uh, and also it showcases, you know, what might just um, not be as, as up to date in terms of parlance, in terms of just, you know, social media and how that plays a part wasn't contemplated when this act was written as an mm-hmm. example. Um, and so... Uh, you know, and if it further kind of helps to distinguish whose whose role is what, uh, it, you know, it always gets murky when you're talking about the actual precinct of, of Canadian Parliament as well as in terms of, you know, who's who's in charge of that and and all of the uh, very um, inner quirks of uh, of uh, protection on uh, within downtown Ottawa itself. So, uh, you know, um, I, I hope that uh, that there are some positives of that. Um, and, uh, you know, just on the political side, I would say, I don't think there's a single person who, um, who was, a, who was following this along as supporters of the convoy that would ever have considered voting liberal or, at, at all. So I don't think that it's about to change anybody's minds whatsoever. No, I, I think you're probably right on that. All right, gang, thanks for dealing with this. You know, the Liberals are on the way back to Ottawa for caucus for the next couple of days. I'm sure there'll be no more thunderbolts from the sky for them to deal with. All right, thanks to the power panel, Michelle Cadario, Kate Harrison, Cheryl Oates, and Emily Nicolai. Thanks so much, gang. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.